to a brand new edition of Problematic Living. I'm Lauren Evans, and hosting with me as always is Virginia Allen. Welcome, Virginia. Lauren, it's good to be here. Well, Virginia, right now, it's good to be anywhere. I think, like a lot of our listeners, I'm definitely, you know, I'm just starting to feel a little antsy cooped up in my house. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where, you know, even I'm an introvert, and I think even for people like me who usually, you know, like quiet nights at home are completely fine, they're actually welcomed, I'm now like, just let me go sit at a coffee shop. I just need to see people and be somewhere public. <laughs> I mentioned the other day to a group chat that I'm on, I was like, do you guys want to play a game night on Zoom? And literally within like 30 seconds, everybody on the chat was like, yes. Everybody <laughs> just like really wants to like hang out. So we're with you, Problematic Women Nation. Yeah, uh, the struggle is real. And one of our um, awesome problematic women answered last week's Twitter question, which we had asked people to share any funny stories uh, or experiences of just, you know, what it's like kind of being cooped up inside, funny interactions with family or friends. So Rachel Minoski at Minoski Rachel tweeted us and said, on Monday, I did Chick-fil-A online ordering and parked in the lot where they would run you out your food. This was, in all caps, thrilling for me, (laughs) love that, because I haven't had one-on-one interaction with another human in person in almost a month. When the employee ran out to give me my food, I started crying and told him that he was the kindest person ever. He promptly sprinted, again in all caps, away from my car. Now I'm nervous for my return to the real world of social interaction. <laughs> I love it. I know. Thank you, Rachel. It so made me laugh because I can absolutely picture myself doing the exact same thing <laughs> and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so awkward when I go back into the real world. <laughs> I saw a meme the other day that was like, oh, it's trash day. Like, what am I going to wear to take out the trash? <laughs> It's like these really small things in life are now like a major deal. Like I'm getting all like, you know, putting on the makeup and getting all nice because I have a Zoom call and it's like, you know, you have to look your best. Uh, Well, we do have a new Twitter question for you all this week. So be sure to stay tuned till the end of the show and we will let you know what that is. We love hearing from you all. And before we dive into today's three topics, we wanted to let you know that Virginia and I will be doing a live podcast recording with the Leadership Institute on Monday at 3 p.m. The show will be titled Phyllis Schlafly, the OG Problematic Woman, and we will be discussing the new Hulu miniseries on Phyllis Schlafly and interviewing Schlafly's daughter, Ann Corey Schlafly, about her mom's legacy and what the Hulu series got right and wrong. Well, and unfortunately, it seems that it got a lot wrong. If you're not familiar with Phyllis Schlafly, she was a strong conservative woman who rallied grassroots efforts to oppose the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s. Schlafly saw that the Equal Rights Amendment would actually do more harm to women than good. The bill essentially would remove the sex differentiation so that women would be susceptible to military drafts, and the bill as a whole would disproportionately harm lower and middle class women. We would love for all of you to join us at 3 p.m. on Monday to learn more about Schlafly and why she did fight so hard to oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. I know myself, I'm so excited for this event. We're going to be interviewing live Schlafly's daughter and Corey, so you will be able to ask her questions. So you don't want to miss it. The link to register will be in today's show notes. But Virginia, enough about next week. What are we talking about this week? 
All right. Well, we're excited to talk with healthcare economist Dr. Gail Walensky about how we can save both American lives and livelihoods during the coronavirus pandemic. Heritage Foundation legal fellow Elizabeth Slattery joins us to discuss religious liberty as some churches are still trying to meet in creative ways during the coronavirus. And Olympic pistol shooter Lexi Lagan tells us how the postponement of the summer games is affecting her training schedule. And of course, we will be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make such a huge difference. Okay, let's dive in. On April 6th, the Heritage Foundation launched the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, a commission created to strengthen the American economy and help Americans get back to work after the coronavirus. The aim of the 17 commissioners is to save not only lives, but also livelihoods. Casey James, Heritage Foundation president, is the chair of the commission that is composed of leaders and experts in the fields of government, public health, disaster response and relief, academia and education, business and the faith community. Now, there's five steps that the commission has put forth in order to get America back to normal, really. And here to tell us more about those five steps and the commission as a whole is Dr. Gail Walensky, an economist and senior fellow at Project Hope. Dr. Walensky, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure to join you. Now, you are a healthcare economist, and you have worked with the World Health Organization in the past. You've served in the White House as a senior health and welfare advisor to President George H.W. Bush, and you're an elected member of the Institute of Medicine. We could go on and on with all of your qualifications and your impressive resume, but can you begin just by telling us what exactly a healthcare economist does? That's a good question. It's not a term many people are familiar with. As a healthcare economist, it means that I am trained first and foremost as an economist. I have a doctoral level degree from the University of Michigan. And I'm a health economist because uh, since the early to mid-1970s, I have worked uh, in the area of healthcare and health economics uh, as a policy researcher, uh, as an academic at the University of Michigan and George Washington University, um, in government running Medicare and Medicaid in the first Bush administration and also being uh, an advisor uh, to uh, Bush 41, uh, and also on a number of uh, commissions uh, since then, uh, including uh, the initial four years of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, known as MedPAC, uh, and a number of uh, defense-related uh, commissions, uh, either congressionally mandated uh, or uh, from the uh, White House, uh, and uh, continue uh, on the Board of Regents of the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. So it's an unusual mix of government experience, survey of research uh, experience, uh, policy uh, research, 
um, and a keen observer uh, of what is going on in the economy. Dr. Wolinski, you've been working with Project HOPE since 1993. What sort of work does Project HOPE do and what do you do for Project HOPE? Uh, Two very different questions. Um, Project HOPE uh, is primarily focused on uh, medical education uh, in low and middle income countries throughout the world uh, and uh, also uh, does um, some work in uh, the United States uh, as well as elsewhere uh, on disaster relief. Um, In the early 1980s, uh, Project Hope set up uh, a domestic side, uh, a policy research group, which I had initially headed, uh, and a policy journal uh, called Health Affairs, uh, which is now available both in print uh, and online to supplement uh, the very practical-oriented work uh, it had been doing uh, primarily internationally. Interesting. We love hearing a little bit about your background and experience, but we do want to jump in and talk just a little bit um, about the commission and really what you all are doing. So you're one of the 17 members on the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. Can you explain the mission of the commission and what your role is? The commission's focus is on helping the country understand something about the spread of the disease, uh, the testing and reporting and tracing of the disease, uh, and what it would look like if we were to return to a more normal level of business uh, activity, Uh, what it means to be able to continue building on the science, uh, and what it means to have continuing U.S. leadership uh, as part of the economic recovery Uh, And obviously, all of us in the United States and around the world uh, would like to reduce the likelihood of future pandemics. So with this pandemic, we're stuck between a bit of a rock and a hard place because we want to keep the American people safe, but we also need to reopen our economy. Can you explain how these two objectives are so dependent upon one another? People sometimes forget that people's health and well-being Uh, doesn't just depend on their physical health. Uh, It also depends on their economic well-being. Uh, I spent three and a half years on a World Health Organization uh, commission on the social determinants of health. Uh, And what that was all about was recognizing that people's health depends on the access to medical care at particular points Uh, in their life when they need access to medical care, but equally important depends on work opportunities, uh, on the conditions where uh, they live, on the circumstances uh, in which they work and they spend most of their lives, and that these are very much integrated. If you want to improve health, uh, not necessarily maximize health, that health is Uh, one element of our our lifestyle, but improve and have good health, you can't ignore these other aspects, these social determinants of how we live uh, and work and spend our lives. Now, you all on the commission, you've laid out five steps uh, that's kind of in series to where, you know, we can really kind of get 
America back to a place of strength and strength in the American economy. Could you just walk us through what those five steps are? What I think is the first step is that we need to slow the spread of the virus while we are expanding testing and reporting. Uh, That really is the first line of business to calming fears uh, and also providing some assurances to the American public uh, that uh, there is an understanding about how important stopping the spread of the virus is. But we also understand that we have absolutely need to return to a more normal level of business activity uh, and that we need to do so uh, at a regional and local level and by using the best scientific data uh, that is available. And not all places in the country are getting hit at the same rate and at the same time. Uh, And not all places in the country uh, are likely to recover uh, at the same rate uh, and at the same time. Uh, And what might make sense uh, for low-density states like uh, North and South Dakota or Wyoming uh, might be inappropriate uh, for the middle of Manhattan. Uh, We are uh, a big uh, uh, country uh, with a lot of diversity at every level, and that's going to impact how we have a sensible recovery. Uh, This is definitely not a one-size-fits-all solution. In addition to uh, returning to a more normal level of business economy, uh, we want to make sure that we continue with the science. Uh, We're learning a lot uh, about the kind of diagnostic tests Uh, that are needed, Uh, and we need to be able uh, to make sure that proven therapeutics, emphasis on proven, uh, are adopted uh, and expanded as quickly as possible. Uh, We want to make sure that we maintain uh, our position uh, as uh, the leader uh, in both the economy and the free world, Uh, and we want to make sure that we put in place uh, monitoring mechanisms Uh, that uh, will make it less likely uh, that these kinds of pandemics uh, um, hit us in the future, although saying they won't uh, hit us again, I think, would be a bit foolhardy. So let's let's touch a little bit more on that fifth step within the commission's plan, uh, which is to reduce the risk of future pandemics. I mean, how how do we really do that and how much control do we have when we're looking at a virus that came from China um, and really spread from other countries, are, how much are we able to manipulate controlling that this won't ever happen again? I don't think we should promise that this won't ever happen again because I think it's outside our ability uh, to keep such promises. And I don't like to make promises I don't think I can keep. What we can do is try to have a quicker ability to respond to the threat of future pandemics uh, in terms of having ongoing surveillance uh, and reconsidering uh, where we place um, the uh, uh, monitoring of the pandemic. Uh, There has been a a history actually since uh, the Clinton administration, so this is uh, not anything new about whether or not to have a pandemic office uh, in the White House. Uh, It is now uh, in uh, HHS, uh, which is somewhat downstream 
Uh, it was in the White House. It was canceled. It was in the White House. It was canceled. Uh, it was reestablished by an, to an assistant secretary who is very well suited to the job. Uh, but having it uh, in HHS, uh, whether rather uh, than the White House, uh, does not put it at the same level uh, as other threats to national security. I think it may be time when this pandemic uh, is part of our past to reconsider, is it best to have it up at the level uh, of national security uh, or should it be part of HHS? There are some arguments uh, either way, uh, but as somebody who has both worked uh, running an independent agency in HHS uh, and been an advisor to the president of the White House, uh, there's no question uh, that when something is lodged in the White House, uh, it has a power uh, that is not comparable uh, if it is uh, in compared to when it is in one of the uh, departments or agencies outside of the White House. So I think it might be time to uh, reconsider that uh, as it's been reconsidered on and off uh, for the last uh, 20 plus years. Dr. Walensky, America will get over coronavirus eventually. What is society going to look like and what will be our new normal in America? I don't want to make it sound like I think it is going to be months and months until we get uh, over this. Um, I expect the economy to start reopening in the next six to eight weeks on a staged basis. Uh, I think people uh, ought not to think about it as being a light switch and there will be a magic date uh, on which all of the country opens on the same point. Uh, that makes no sense. Uh, the uh, incidence and frequency of the disease is not the same uh, everywhere and the recovery uh, will not be the same. Uh, we will gradually have a rolling uh, reopening of economies uh, in accordance with the desires uh, of not only the federal government, but importantly uh, of the state uh, and local governments uh, as to what their communities uh, are ready to do. Uh, but just as not everything returned to the way it was uh, after 9-11, uh, my guess is not everything will return to the way it was uh, before the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, if nothing else, we will have learned uh, that telehealth uh, has a lot of value and uses, uh, and presumably there will be changes uh, in rules and regulations and perhaps uh, legislation uh, to the extent needed uh, that will allow for greater use of telehealth. Uh, and we will also have an increased use uh, of other electronic communications uh, between individuals. Uh, but impersonal contact uh, is very important for many reasons. Uh, and I expect that we will continue to see uh, the bulk of our business transactions uh, going on in, an, uh, in a person-to-person -person basis. Uh, again, unrolling uh, as it appears to be safe and prudent uh, in various places across the country. Well, we are certainly thankful for all the work that you're doing on the commission and, and those that are working with you are doing. How can we follow your work and kind of you know, see the progress as you all are, are moving along? This is a very fast-track activity. Uh, we want to have this done uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, we will be posting uh, online, on Facebook, 
the, the individual uh, members of uh, the group will be posting uh, through their own organizations uh, as well as online. Uh, so we hope to share the views of this group. Uh, all of us are volunteering our time, uh, of course, to try to uh, come out with what we hope will be uh, actionable, uh, sensible recommendations. Uh, and uh, any way you can uh, help spread the message would be mo most appreciated. That's great. And we certainly encourage all of our listeners to follow the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission on Twitter at COVID-19 Recovery. Dr. Walensky, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure to join you. I hope your listeners will do as you have suggested. At The Daily Signal, we want to make sure you and your family are receiving the most accurate information about the coronavirus. Here's an important message from First Lady Melania Trump. To all of our medical personnel and other frontline responders, on behalf of a grateful nation, thank you. The President and I appreciate all that you're doing to keep the people of our country healthy and safe. In the most difficult of times, the United States never fails to rise to the occasion with both unity and strength. It is because of you that the people of America are receiving the care and treatment they need. We stand united with you and we salute your courageous and compassionate efforts. Our prayers are with all who are fighting this invisible enemy, COVID-19. This past Sunday was Easter Sunday, one of the biggest holidays of the year for Christians. However, due to COVID-19, celebrations looked very different this year. Most churches held live streaming or video conferencing services, but one church, On Fire Christian Center, located in Louisville, Kentucky, decided to host a drive-through church where members would come to the church, stay in their cars, and tune into a radio station to hear the pastor give the sermon. Sounds like they're following social distancing, right? However, both the governor and the mayor of the city of Louisville saw this as problematic and threatened attendees of the services with fines for attending, even suggesting they would record license plates of churchgoers. The church and legal defense team from First Liberty fought the orders, and last minute, U.S. District Court Judge Justin Walker issued an emergency temporary restraining order preventing the mayor and city of Louisville from enforcing orders against On Fire Christian Center and its planned drive-in Easter gatherings. To discuss this on the show, we have legal expert at the Heritage Foundation, frequent guest, and Kentucky native Elizabeth Slattery. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. First off, before we get into this, I want to ask how you're doing quarantine with two young boys at home. Well, it's challenging. Uh, my husband and I are trying to work in shifts, so we each get sort of an hour or two here and there. So the boys are napping right now, so hopefully they will cooperate and continue to be quiet while we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> the shifts, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah, and, you know, we, we're we really just enjoying all of this extra time with them every day that, you know, working parents don't necessarily expect to get all of this uh, extra time with their kids. So it's it's really been, you know, a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I, I love that. I love finding like the little nuggets of, of good and <laughs> with all, everything going on. Definitely. But Elizabeth, I want to get your take on this case of the Kentucky church. Sure. So I think ultimately the judge got it right. Uh, the, the mayor was, you know, 
threatening potential criminal penalties and fines for people trying to exercise their uh, their right to go and worship together, you know, maintaining social distance, uh, staying in their cars. And in his opinion, Judge Walker pointed out that the city was allowing, you know, drive through liquor pickup and, you know, drive through restaurants and all sorts of other uh, drive through services where, you know, you would have to roll down your window and interact with someone. And the church simply wanted people to be able to drive up and keep their windows shut and tune into a radio station to be able to be together in in their community and worship together on Easter Sunday. So for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with district courts, how did this church fight the order from the mayor? So the the mayor, you know, gave a press conference on Friday and said I'm really encouraging people not to do these drive-in services over the weekend and uh you know, then suggested that, as you mentioned, police were going to be taking down license plates and potentially fining people. And and so the attorneys brought a complaint before uh, the district court in Louisville, and uh, the judge entered a temporary restraining order so that the church was able to have its drive-in service on Easter Sunday. Uh, but the case is continuing to see how the mayor is going to apply the the city's guidance on what uh, people should be doing and whether they should be leaving their homes. Um, so the case is is far from over. And this isn't happening in just Kentucky. This is happening in Mississippi and states all over the United States. Does this case have an effect on other cases in the United States? Sure. So you're right that there are other instances across the country. Uh, For example, earlier this week, the Justice Department uh, filed a statement of interest supporting a Baptist church that had sued Greenville, Mississippi, because it fined people $500 for those who attended a drive-in service last weekend. And uh, there's also a a case, uh, I think, coming up in, in Kansas as well. And so you know, this is an issue that's not going away. Um, we don't know how long we're all going to be, you know, temporarily uh, required to stay in our homes, except for, you know, leaving for Im- important things like going to get groceries and, you know, hopefully being able to go and worship together yeah, if you're maintaining the appropriate social distance. Um, and and so, you know, we'll see what, what happens, but it's, it's important for you know, local government and states and the federal government all to respect the free exercise of religion while balancing it against the, you know, the the, the important um, safeguarding of, of Americans' health in this pandemic. And I wanted to go a little broader, Elizabeth. I hope all of our listeners are very familiar with what the First Amendment says, but how do emergencies and pandemics affect how the First Amendment protects Americans and their civil liberties. Sure. So the First Amendment obviously protects the free exercise of religion, but it's not absolute. So federal law, there is one called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also called RIFRA. It prohibits the government from placing a substantial burden on the exercise of religion unless that burden advances a compelling interest in the least restrictive way possible. Many states have similar laws. Uh, so the big question here is what 
makes a reason compelling? Well, there isn't an exact definition, but this is one of the toughest standards to meet uh, when a government action uh, uh, burdens an individual right. This is known as strict scrutiny for people who follow the courts. So it applies to laws that restrict speech, religion, and other fundamental rights, and also laws that involve race. And on average, challenged laws survive roughly 30% of the time. So the Supreme Court has long been very skeptical of government forcing someone to choose between complying with the tenets of their faith and the law, but it has upheld things like compulsory vaccination laws, mandatory social security payments, child labor laws, and, and also outlawing polygamy, all of these over religious objections. So the court has explained that only those interests of the highest order and those not otherwise served can overbalance legitimate claims to the free exercise of religion. So it's a pretty high bar, but I, I think that, you know, the situation we're in right now is a compelling interest and the shelter in place or stay at home orders appear to be the least restrictive means for what we know about the virus right now. So keeping our social distance, keeping gatherings to fewer than 10 people, you know, while maintaining that social distance. Uh, it seems like for the most part, governments and churches are able to, you know, be partners and work together to, you know, fight this pandemic. Elizabeth, I don't want to talk too much about what ifs, but I think a lot of our listeners like me think, you know, if the government can make decisions like this, what if one day they decide that, Climate change is a pandemic, and when you need to restrict civil liberties to fight that, how are we protected to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, that's why I think a lot of these lawsuits that we're seeing, like the one in Kentucky and the one in Mississippi, why those are important to show that even in the time of a global pandemic with this virus that we're still learning about every day, how it's transmitted and, uh, and other things like that, it's, it's important that we have these lawsuits to push back on government overreach uh, and when the government is either targeting religion for disfavored treatment, which I think you could make the case in Louisville and other places where, uh, where they've singled out churches and said we can't have drive-in services where people stay in their cars and you know listen on a radio. Uh, so I think what happens with these cases will be an important bellwether for emergencies like this in the future. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. You're a very coveted nap time today. <laughs> if you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org. On March 23rd, the International Olympic Committee announced that the 2020 Tokyo Summer Games would be postponed until 2021. 74 Team USA athletes had already qualified for the Games, 
and hundreds of other athletes are still waiting until after COVID-19 so that they can have their chance to qualify. Well, one of those 74 qualifying athletes is here with us today to talk about the postponement of the games and what it means for her Olympic goals. Lexi Lagan is an Olympic pistol shooter for Team USA. Lexi, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Now, for those who don't know a lot about pistol shooting, can you just explain uh, the sport to us a little bit and how you got involved with it? Yeah, of course. So pistol shooting is um, a very high-intensity mental sport. Uh, We're not running around. We're not doing a lot of these very... um, agility-bound sports, but we are very, very high intensity, um, focused on our little targets, um, shooting these firearms one-handed from a distance of about 10 to 25 meters. Uh, 50 meters goes out for rifle and shotgun is a little bit varied. But yeah, we're we're a very high intensity, uh, very mental drawn sport. And when did when did shooting kind of switch from just being like, oh, this is something that I enjoy to, oh, I, I want to see how far I can go in this sport? I got started back in college and um, it was a way for me to try and make friends when I went up to the University of Utah. Um, it was something that I had done with my 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 family as a bonding activity. So when I went up to college, I figured it would be a great way to bond with some new people. Um However, as I got more and more in depth into this sport, I realized that this was going to be a great opportunity to meet a lot of people and go a lot of places, but it was something that I really wanted to be successful at. I really wanted to do my best and be the best of this sport, Um, and that's really pushed me all the way from just shooting for fun and for a little bit of a break from, from studying to going to the Olympics and trying to win that Olympic gold medal. That's so exciting. Well, and when when did the Olympics kind of come into your view and you begin to think, actually, I, I think this is possible that I could go all the way? I think it was in 2015. I um, I started going to more and more open U.S. national events for pistol shooting and realizing that this was something that I actually had a talent in um, that I really enjoyed and that I could see myself going very far with. Um, So right after that was trials. Um, Trials started in fall of 2015 for the 2016 Rio Olympics. Um, So I, I tried my hand at it. I didn't really anticipate myself doing as well as I did. Um, I was one of the alternates for women's air pistol for 2016. And for only having really just barely dipped my toe in the water um, of this sport, it was very exciting to see myself do so well at that particular trial. Um, After that, I knew that I wanted to go for another Olympic trial, um, see how well I was progressing, and then reevaluate from there. And it seems like I really want to stick with the sport for a little bit longer. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. Well, and so you you have already qualified for the 2020 Games. What is kind of the preparation that goes into preparing for for that qualification? Uh, It takes quite a bit. Um, You really start prepping as soon as the Olympic trials for the last 
Olympics are over. Um, so from 2016, when I had the real, like I had the placement of being an alternate, I realized that this was going to be a thing. I started working with the national coach at the time. Um, and I made up a, a training schedule for that would be adaptive for my life in college as well as my life in shooting. Then when I graduated in 2017 from uh, the university, I moved out to the Olympic Training Center that summer and started really digging deep in and trying to get ready for uh, world championships that happens in that happened in 2018. Um, it happens every two years offset by the Olympics. Um, so it it really starts back then. Uh, world championships is the first uh, opportunity to qualify an Olympic quota spot, uh, which is like winning a ticket for the country to go to that particular sport, but it doesn't put your name on it. Um, so getting those quota spots is critical to be able to go to the Olympics, um, even though it doesn't necessarily say I'm going to go. Um, so from there, I, I worked really hard. I didn't do as well as I was hoping in world championships due to an injury, um, but I recovered from it and got myself buckled down for the Championships of Americas in Guadalajara uh, late 2018. And that's where I won my Olympic quota for women's sport pistol. And I do say my Olympic quota because I knew from that moment, like, this is mine. I want to win this back. I want to go to the Olympics with this quota. Um, and I worked really hard and my coach, Jason Turner, and I uh, really modified my schedule. So that way I was not only training my sport, but I was also training physically and I was training my nutritional needs and I was working with a sports psychologist to mentally train for it. It's, it's a entire uh, lifestyle to get ready for the Olympics. So then when the Olympic trials finally started up in 2019, I, I felt like I was prepared for them and I, I did really well. I put myself in a really nice position. I had a good lead going into the second part, uh, which happened back in February this year. And I ended up winning my Olympic trials in February by almost 40 points, which is pretty significant in my sport where um, a half a point can make or break the difference between a gold medal and a silver medal. A 40 point win is huge. So that really solidified for me, like I am ready for the Olympics. I know where I'm standing and um, I, I felt very prepared for this year up until they started canceling some of the competitions that my coach and I were going to use as training um, leading up to the Olympics. So what, what was kind of your first thought or reaction when the International Olympic Committee came out and said, it's official, we're postponing until 2021? At the time uh, when they finally said that we were going to postpone, I felt very comfortable with it. I knew that that was a good decision that would be beneficial to not only myself, but many of the other athletes in the shooting field. Um, I was very upset right after Olympic trials, listening to uh, some of the competitions that were being canceled and knowing that I would still need to be completely prepared and ready for the Olympics, regardless of how many competitions I had. It was frustrating and disappointing because it felt like I wouldn't get 
um, all of the preparation that I would need for this Olympics. So having the Olympics delayed and postponed, um, it kind of reset all of those feelings because it it was it made me feel like, okay, all of these feelings that I was frustrated with, and these were the reasons why all of those reasons are now gone. I now have an entire year to prepare for the Olympics. Um, it just, it really helped me realize, oh, okay, this is going to be perfectly fine. I can do this. My coach has a lot of confidence in me and we're, we're really excited for this year leading up to the Olympics to prepare and to really dig deep into preparing for the Olympics rather than preparing for a national Olympic trial. Yeah. So at this point, that additional time is really a huge benefit to you. Yes, very much so. I think it's not only a benefit for myself, but for a lot of athletes that were going through the same issues of worry, um, what competitions am I going to be able to get into? Uh, what training am I going to be able to do to prepare? Now we all have this time to reset and for a lot of us recover. Uh, shooting sports are not just a seasonal sport. It tends to be year round. Um, so for a lot of us, we haven't really had a good break unless we just skip competitions. Um, and that's not the best of ideas during uh, during the the big season of the quad, which is the last two years leading up to the Olympics. So a lot of us haven't really had a good break in two years. Now we get a little bit of time to recover and rest and prepare to start buckling down again for the Olympics. It's a really good opportunity. And I expect to see um, some very competitive, very intense scores leading into the Olympics. It, it's exciting. That is exciting. Well, and even though we're all, I know, disappointed that we don't get the Olympics this year, we're certainly happy for you and so many other athletes who, like yourself, are really going to take advantage of this additional time to train and prepare. But, you know, in light of that, we we do uh, want to give you sort of a, a virtual award, I guess, on today's show, since, you know, you're not going to get to compete in 2020 for a gold medal. So we're going to give you the highest award that on Problematic Women we can give you, which is crown you our Problematic Woman of the Week. And, you know, Lexi, you you are so driven and you have so many just incredible skills and not just your actual skills of being able to shoot, but that takes an amazing amount of, of drive and determination to advance really that far in any skill. So I, I do just want to ask you, what would be your advice to, to anyone listening today who maybe has an interest in you know a certain sport or a skill? Maybe they want to start a business or a nonprofit, but they're, you know, they're intimidated. That's a big step. What encouragement would you offer them that's maybe something that has been a, a driving force for you? Well, first, thank you so much. That's very exciting. I've never been titled with the problematic woman, but <laughs> I'll definitely have to brag about that with my parents. Um, but for me, I think one of the biggest things that have helped me so much in getting from where I was at the beginning of my shooting to where I am now was understanding that it's okay to ask for help and having a lot of compassion for myself when I do have mistakes. Um, there's definitely been lots of ups and downs for me. Um, and one of the biggest things that has helped me is having that compassion and saying, hey, I don't understand this, or this wasn't my best 
performance or competition, but that's okay because I'm going to do this to make this better, or I'm going to try harder with this particular issue. And then turning and in the areas where I, I don't have a solution, asking for help, asking my coach, asking um, my teammates if they have a solution, and just reaching out to others. It's okay. You don't have to do everything all on your own. Um, and trying to do something all on your own really isn't going to pan out for anybody. Um, there are a few uh, unicorns, I guess, amongst us that can somehow shoulder all of that all on their own, but it it's very, very difficult. And it's it's difficult even asking for help sometimes, but it's probably not as difficult as trying to shoulder everything on your own. Um, so that's always been my biggest thing is having compassion for myself when I do make mistakes and having the humility, I guess, um, to reach out for help. And then I guess the third thing, because everything comes in in triplets, it's making sure that you are grateful for that help and, and showing your gratitude to others and showing your gratitude to, for me, it's for my heavenly father for blessing me with all of these skills and talents and the, the blessing of having these people surrounding me to help me get through all of these different problems and issues and um, obstacles that sometimes come into my way. So I think that's kind of my big three is, um, compassion for self and humility to reach out and ask for help. And of course, having gratitude for the things that have been given to us. I love that. You can't see me, but I have this huge smile on my face right now because <laughs> like, that's so good. And you're speaking truth. So thank you, yeah. Lexi. We, we really appreciate you coming on and just sharing a little bit of, of your story with us. And we're certainly all going to be watching in 2021 when we finally get to the Olympics and we will all be rooting for you. So thanks so thank much. You so much. It's now time for this week's Twitter question. Thank you so much to everyone who has been tweeting at us. We really do love hearing from you. So this week's question is, what is a weird or funny habit that you have started since COVID-19 hit? You can tweet at The Daily Signal and make sure to use the hashtag problematic women so that we'll see your tweet. And when we do, we will read it on the show. So I will go ahead and go first. I'll embarrass myself first. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. Uh, <laughs> I, for some reason, have like two or three times now falling down a, you know, YouTube black hole of watching like short documentaries on closed Disney and universal rights. I don't know why. It's just bizarre, but it's, it's super interesting. How did you first stumble upon that? So my dad made me watch Jaws because uh, I've never seen it. And, uh, you know, growing up in Florida, we went to universal a lot. And I was like, Oh, you know, I have, Actually, the first time I ever rode that ride, it's it's terrifying. And my parents told me that it was just a nice boat ride. So I thought that it was all real and uh, like I couldn't go in the bathtub for a week. But, you know, like we went a ton of times after that. And I was like, oh, I, I just wonder how the ride was like the movie. And so I looked up on YouTube to see if somebody had taken their phone on the ride. And of course I did. But not only that, like somebody wrote a, made a whole documentary about I guess like they made it first and then it didn't work. So they had to like spend another $30 million to fix it. And yeah, it's just, it's just really fascinating how um, the electronics and the, the production behind those rides 
Wild. Well, I'm glad that you're finding some entertainment from that, Lauren. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, don't forget to sign up for our live Problematic Women recording with the Leadership Institute at 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday. It's going to be a great show, and you don't want to miss it. We will be sure to put uh, the link for both uh, the show that you can sign up for on Monday and our Twitter question in the show notes for today. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Well, we hope to see you all on Monday on the live show, but we hope that you have a great rest of your week and a wonderful weekend. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.